I'm Hadley Baker, assistant editor at Lawfare. Today on Lawfare No Bull. On September 14th, in a hearing in Fulton County, Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee granted an expedited trial schedule for former Trump lawyers Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell, separate from their 17 other co-defendants in the Georgia election interference case. The hearing also covered the defendant's motion to unseal transcripts of witness testimony before the special purpose grand jury. During the hearing, the prosecution handed over a list of names of the 30 unindicted co-conspirators to the defendant's lawyers. We are back with 23SC188947. Mr. Grubman, have you received express permission from your client to waive his presence? Good morning, Your Honor. Yes, we have. All right. Mr. Rafferty? Yes, Your Honor. Good morning. Good morning. So we have three motions teed up for this morning. And why don't we dive right in, uh, beginning with the motion to speak with the grand jurors, joined by Ms. Powell. Judge, um, just as a preliminary matter, um, the, the state uh, intends to comply with all of its legal and ethical obligations to turn over the, uh, the co-conspirator information um, with, with, with just the understanding that um, the, the reason the reason why the, the names of the co-defendants are not already in the indictment judge um, is that it, it's it's um, courts are frowned upon putting putting the individual's names if they're not charged um, within the charging document. Um, we'll turn those over to the court with uh, a request that, that the court hold them uh, uh, under a protective order, so to speak, to protect the identities of those individuals or to um, control, I guess, the public impact of the names that are on that list. All right. So it sounds like you want to skip to number three, the motion to disclose the co-conspirators. Well, just to do away with. Right. Just kind of streamline. All right. Let's start with that one. It might be the easiest to get into. So uh, let me make sure I'm understanding what I'm hearing. So you, you're you're wanting to you you are willing to go ahead and just give this list to de- defense counsel informally through the discovery process i'd like to present it to the court okay the court, the court can then distribute it to defense counsel as it sees fit but it's it's the state's position that um because the practice of naming the co-defendant the, un, the uh, unindicted co-defendants um or co-conspirators in the indictment um, has been criticized. The state is elected to do it this way in order to protect those individuals and those names that are uh, on this list. So I'm, I'm tracking you completely there, and I and I agree. I think that's the standard practice. I, I just I'm curious why I would be the the middleman. It seems like we could take the folder and just give it right to the defendants. I think that would be the would regular be thing to do. Well, I mean, the court could impose a protective order that all of the parties to this case are subject to about disclosure of discovery to the media. Uh, if that is the concern of the government. But we have a trial on October 23rd. They have the list of co-conspirators. They're consenting to the motion. Why don't they just give us that information directly? Sure. I think we're all about to reach the same place. So uh, the uh, bottom line is it, it seems like this is a fairly straightforward request. I think federally it would be a bill of particulars, and those are fairly routinely approved. So uh, we can I can file an order if you want me to, but otherwise will say that uh, the list of individuals one through 30 is going to be disclosed to not only I would think these two defendants, but uh, the other 17 
defendants uh, through the discovery process and obviously right now. So in terms of a protective order, if the state's requesting one and the defense is not objecting, we can certainly do that as well. But otherwise, it seems like this is just a fairly routine part of the discovery. We'll just look at the language of the protective order. Obviously, uh, any protective order of not disseminating discovery or information to the media would have to work both ways. The state would also have to agree with that. Um, but we have the list now. So All right. I guess it's a moot point. I was just about to say that. So I'll go ahead and just enter a, a one sentence order saying the motion is is moot. And presumably this list is numbered. So it can identify which count refers to which unindicted conspirator and that sort of thing. Right. Yes, sir. All right. And, and further, Judge, just to streamline the today's uh, arguments more so, um, the state does plan uh, or intend to turn over um, the uh, transcript of Mr. Cheeley's testimony, given that he's charged in count 41 in the indictment with perjury. And that testimony is an integral part of, uh, of proving up our case. Okay, so now we want, we're moving on to number two, the uh, motion to unseal the special grand jury transcripts. Is, do we think we've addressed everything we need to cover with the unindicted co-conspirators? Yes, Your Honor. All right, anything else, Mr. Rafferty, you think we need to take up on that one? No, Your Honor. Thank All right. You. Thank you, sir. All right, then uh, let's move on to number two. So obviously it looks like the idea of the entire report itself has been taken care of, but the motion goes a bit further than that, Mr. Wade, and it says that they should, they want to be able to inspect the entire transcript, assuming there was one, I don't know, uh, and any recordings and essentially anything that the special grand jury produced. So let me just give kind of, let me get your Obviously, I'll let the defense present their motion, but let me first start with where, where the state is in terms of what you think of that is disclosable and discoverable. If if the, if we're if the state's following its standard open file policy, just just maybe give me a bit more background about that and what you think is fair game here. Yes, sir. Basically, just the state would contend that any transcripts, any and all transcripts that. Uh, have been produced uh, by the grand jury or the special purpose grand jury are not discoverable uh, and that uh, defense counsel should not have access to them. Um, and I know that the court wants to hear further argument in that after the defense has this opportunity to put their case on, but that's our position. Jeff. With the sole exception being Mr. Cheeley's? Given, given okay. that Mr. Cheeley is directly charged in count 41 of the indictment, um, that's the exception. And, and what if some of these witnesses that testified you call as a witness at trial? So, Judge, then we, we rely on actually the discovery statute that talks about that. Um, we would say that at that point, um, when the state has made the decision to um, call one of the witnesses that has testified before the grand jury, at that point, the transcript becomes relevant and we turn it over. All right, so we may have to talk some logistics, but we'll see where we end up. So, uh, Mr. Grubman or Mr. Aurora, uh, your motion. Um, your Honor, I would just take exception with doing what they call Jenks material in federal court, where they give it to you at the last second, because we have to craft a defense based on right. people. And, and, that's, and that's what I was getting to. We'll right. get there. So, if we look at the litigation that happened before the special grand jury, it's 2022-EX-00024. I'd like to adopt the brief that was filed by the media companies asking for the release of all these transcripts because they've got a lot of the law uh, that I've cited so we don't have to sort of go through all of it. Um, 
OCGA 1512-101 lists out the requirements that a special grand jury needs to do. And that requirement includes interim reports that have to be presented to the judge as far as what their work is going on. Um, I didn't know if there were transcripts, but apparently there are in this case as what the prosecution says. We know that based on the report that was released, there were 75 witnesses that testified before the grand jury, which I'm imagining were all recorded. They've already told this court they're gonna have 150 witnesses. So whether they choose to call those witnesses or not, I'm entitled to those transcripts to decide if we wanna call them, if there's any impeachment material out there, inconsistent statements, or in fact, exculpatory material that might've been said by any of these people. So I think we have an absolute right under the discovery statute. They have to present all the information from their case in chief to us as ordered by your scheduling order and there's no protection that's out there. We then go to 15-12-80 that gives you the criteria for publishing the special grand jury report. Um, I've also cited the cases that talk about the secrecy issue sort of goes away. Hence the, I, I think the four person of the special grand jury went to the press and made all kinds of statements about these issues. Um, Olson versus State is probably the seminal case. That's 302 Georgia 288 2017 case. And then I also cited the in Ray Gwinnett County special grand jury case that also required allowed for disclosure and said that secrecy doesn't apply after they finish. Uh, that site is in my brief as well, Your Honor. I would further go back about 70 years and go to Dennis versus United States in the United States Supreme Court, 86 Supreme Court 1840. It's a 1966 case that also talks about requirements for disclosure for grand jury transcripts. In every federal case, grand jury transcripts are made available to the defense. They just have a different statute as to when that Jenks material has to be released. But, but it's not every transcript. It's simply going to be the witness that's called. The to witness testify, transcript. Right? Uh, You're asking for everything. Well, I don't know what exactly they recorded. So if they're talking about witnesses, that's fine. But as Your Honor knows, the grand jury is one way traffic. There's no, the DA controls the information that's presented to them. So I don't know what it is they're giving them, what it is they're not giving them when we challenge the validity of the indictment, which I've done in a separate brief as far as that goes. So I would like everything, but at a minimum, I think the law requires the witness statements, whether they choose to use them or not, doesn't avoid the responsibility to give them to us. Maybe I want to use it. I'd like to know who those 75 people were that testified under oath in front of that grand jury, aside from Mr. Cheeley, as they've identified. I don't think there's any way really around that. I think the law supports us. And whether it's a protective order or non-protective order, that's their choice. Um, we don't plan on sharing anything with the press, but we need it and our client needs it to actually prepare for this case. So I think the code sections, the case law, even the Supreme Court case law, and just frankly, fundamental fairness requires that those transcripts at a minimum that witnesses be turned over. But I think I would be allowed to have all of it because if we're gonna challenge the validity of the indictment based on what the grand jurors represented, I think we have a good faith basis to ask for that. What 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 code section are you referring to that you think entitles you to all of it? Um, the way, again, I'm no expert in special grand juries. I haven't prosecuted one when I was a prosecutor, as far as that goes. But I'm looking at fifteen twelve eighty that generally talks about publishing, and a lot of that was discussed with Judge McBurney um, with regards to the case site I gave you, as far as a special grand jury. So a, a lot more law is there. So I didn't want to. You know, burn trees down if it's already been argued out there. So I just highlighted the two statutes and essentially three cases that talk about the secrecy is, if not negligible, much, much lower as far as that goes once the special grand jury has ruled um, or made the recommendations. Okay. That's all Thank you, Mr. Rafferty. I think you joined this one, did you not? 
I did, Your Honor, and, and I would join in all the arguments that Mr. Aurora has made. Well, I, actually, I think maybe you, you, you formally didn't on the record, but if you want to orally now. I would that's join, fine. Your Honor, okay. and, and the only thing I would add and echo from Mr. Aurora are the due process concerns that he's raised. Uh, the government has said they'll turn them over, but only turn them over after they call witnesses. That smacks of gamesmanship, uh, and it would not be the efficient way to try this case. Uh, there is no real reason for the government, they have to disclose their witnesses, to not disclose the transcripts of any witnesses that testify before um, that special purpose grand jury that is going to testify at the trial. Moreover, and, and I'll raise this at a later point in this hearing today, I do have some very grave concerns about the government's compliance with their Brady obligations. I have already submitted two Brady requests. I have not gotten even a response. I'd like the opportunity to raise that later, but I believe that there could be Brady information that is in those transcripts that they are obligated to turn over independent of any statutory discovery obligations. All right, Mr. Wade. Yes, sir. Judge, I think we have started to put the, the, the cart before the, the horse, so to speak. Let, let's start with the premise that, that uh, longstanding and unquestionable authority indicates that grand jury materials, including transcripts and records, are not available to criminal defendants because grand jury proceedings are considered to be confidential. And the state is relying upon Stinsky v. State there. And I have a, a copy here for the court and, and counsel, if I might approach that. Thank you. So this this Stinsky case, along with the Ruffin and the Ivers, stands for the very same proposition, which is that they're not, they're not. There's the Ruffin. Do you think there's any distinction here? between these cases that are gonna talk about grand jury proceedings and this having been a special grand jury that, that they're asking for? There's no distinction there. And why not? Well, for practical purposes, Judge, it's the same function with the exception of the charging element. Um, the special purpose grand jury is an investigative tool, investigative jury um, um, does not make charging decisions, but can make recommendations. Um, a regular grand jury obviously passes down the indictment. So, um, but I think I think Mr. Aurora's argument is that there's a particular statute that only applies to special grand juries that might impact that. There's not. Okay. What is that statute? Well, he cited a uh, fifteen twelve eight. I think it was fifteen eighty. Excuse me. And so just so we're not confusing things, these cases talk about regular grand juries and their deliberations. Well, I think that, I mean, I think that's the question I just put to him. So let's see where, where we go. So there's a difference. 151283, Judge? Oh, I think it was just 80. That's a disclosure statute.
There is no distinction, Judge. The case law is the same. I think that the the particularly the the Olson case that the that defense counsel is relying upon is is not even a case that considered uh, uh, turning over information. That that Olson case um, essentially it, 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 it merely considered which employees a district attorney can be of a district attorney's office that can be present. Um, I, I agree with you there. I think Olson goes more towards what we're going to get to about whether they can speak to grand jurors and what about. Uh, I, I think, and we can, we can, if you need to do a supplemental brief, we can do that. Uh, but the issue is, because we don't see them as often, whether special purpose grand juries have some different degree of secrecy than a regular grand jury, such that we can't just reflexively look at this case law and say, all right, not a hard call. So, Judge, I think that the the, the the application is the same. The analysis is the same. Um, why, why is there a distinction between the special purpose grand jury versus the, the regular grand jury? The law is clear on, on the defense counsel not being able to get the transcripts or any or anything that demonstrates uh, that, that comes out of the uh, a grand jury process, the special purpose grand jury or the regular grand jury process, Judge. Um, and that's the, the Stensky case, the Ruffies case, and the Isaacs case. But I'd I like to, to, to point, uh, direct the court's attention to the fact that there's no authority that demonstrates any defendant is entitled to these, trans, these grand jury transcripts. Um, courts disfavor the release of uh, the, these transcripts. Defense has pointed to none, no overriding factor um, that would override the policy favoring the secrecy of grand juries. And that is, that is the guiding principle, judges, the secrecy of the grand jury. The Supreme Court says that the grand jury is a public institution serving community that might suffer if those testifying today knew that the secrecy of their testimony would be lifted tomorrow. This indispensable, secre this indispensable secrecy of grand jury proceedings must not, not be broken except where there is a compelling necessity. They have to show what that compelling necessity is, Judge. Um, in the Kessler case, uh, along, as, along with the other cases that the state has just given, um, support that proposition. But also the, the, the Supreme Court in, in the Anderson case does as well. Um, now let's talk about the, the Supreme Court because they've identified five, five factors, Judge, um, that that are present in the in the Douglas Oil case that okay we'd like to address first first if the pre-indictment proceedings were made public many prospective witnesses would be hesitant to come forward and voluntarily knowingly and those against whom they testify would be aware of their testimony. That's the first thing. The second factor against releasing the information is witnesses who appeared before the grand jury would be less likely to testify fully and frankly, as they would be open to retribution and also to inducements, which we've seen a little bit of in this case. Third, there also would be the risk that those about to be indicted would flee or fourth would try to influence individual grand jurors to vote against indictment. Five and finally, by preserving the secrecy of the proceedings, we assume the persons who are accused but exonerated by the grand jury will not 
be held up to public ridicule. Those are factors, Judge, that the court should consider um, in determining whether or not the grand jury secrecy provision has been overridden by, by counsel's arguments. Um, we don't believe, Judge, that the defense has relied on any case that would override those factors, but moreover, any treatise that would assist upon them in their, in their reliance, Judge. Um, they did cite to the Henry Gwinnett County case, Judge. Um, and, and even in that case, the requirement that secrecy be maintained among all types of grand juries without distinction. And that's in the Henry, and I'll give the court a copy of that case. I apologize, Judge, I didn't, I didn't bring the court a copy of that Henry Gwinnett County grand jury case, but that's the case that counsel relied upon and cited in its, uh, in its brief and, and even in its argument today. But that case uh, is found at 284 Georgia 510. And it stands for the proposition that the requirement that secrecy be maintained <coughs> among all types, it says all types of grand juries without distinction. So again, the state would submit to the court that there, there's no difference. All right, so I, you know, obviously I'll take a closer look at all the cases you've given me. And I think just as a initial reaction, you're, you're probably right when it goes to saying everything should be turned over, but I wanna drill down a little bit more on the witnesses who maybe at this point already, you know that you're gonna call on, in, in November. Right, uh, I think that's the whole point of our scheduling order here. And what we try to do is that uh, we need to use our trial days efficiently and use our jurors time efficiently. And I would imagine uh, that the state is gonna have uh, an order of proof going into this trial with a, with a list of witnesses. And if, the, if there are witnesses that are on there, the idea of waiting until the minute before they're called and then we've got to now pause the trial for an hour or two while then they're reading the transcript. I don't think we can do that. Would I, you agree? I, I agree. And I, yeah. and I understand that Judge, it, in the state wasn't intent to convey that it, that it would um, hold on to uh, a particular uh, witness's transcript until the eve of trial. Um, we're still obviously going through um, receiving the transcripts, Judge. We don't even have every one of the transcripts. Um, and so we're still going through that process as well. But I, I, I don't think that the court has made an unreasonable uh, suggestion that, that the state not essentially implied that the state would, would not hold on to um, the transcripts until the 11th hour. That's, that's not our, our plan and that's not how we- plan so, so I would think at a bare minimum, and maybe we can talk about whether we have to move that timeline at all but your, your witness list is gonna be due 10 days beforehand. Yes, sir. And so in conjunction with that, I would think that any witness on there who has a transcript, that, that needs to be either expedited or rushed and also provided at that same time. And if 
the issue comes up that, well, we didn't put a witness on that 10 day list, but now we think we need to call them unless it's for a rebuttal or some new issue that's come up during trial. I'm I'm, going to be looking at that and, and really wondering if, if, you know, a good faith effort has been made to, to turn everything over. So uh, I think, I, I think that's, that's not only what defense counsel was referring to, but I think that's the way what we have to do to proceed efficiently at trial. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, and there's no argument or disagreement. I, I think that the court is being reasonable there. Um, but while we're talking about that discovery, um, we believe that we're still in line with the court's uh, uh, scheduling order um, as it relates to discovery. So counsel standing. Yeah, well, well, and we can, uh, we'll talk about that at the end. Let's get through the motions first and we can get more into discovery. But, you know, generally I would think this, this case is obviously different, but um, the state's open file policy traditionally has been, here's everything we have, unless there's some kind of state secret or a confidential informant or something along those lines. Yes, sir. And you have everything that we have and here we go. Yes, sir. So I don't know if that's going to be the spirit that we proceed with here. It might streamline things somewhat, and it, I would. Uh, we'll see where we where it goes. Any thoughts or reactions to that? Oh, it, it is the spirit. Just the district attorney has been clear in our instruction. We are to um, make information available to them as it becomes available to us. Um, we are here prepared today to turn over uh, portions of the discovery um, to the the two defendants that are going to proceed um, with trial on the twenty third. Um, obviously we plan to supplement that discovery as we go along and as we receive the information, but, um, we've made a good faith effort in complying and, and being reasonable and working with, uh, defense counsel. And we'll continue to do that. All right. And when it comes to supplementing, supplementing it, I would think that's going to be confined to new discovery. Yes, sir. Stuff you don't have right now, right? The stuff we don't okay. have. Right now. Yes, so I think for purposes of motion, the motion, uh, let's see, to unseal, uh, I'll, I'll take it under advisement as it concerns the entirety of the record or anything that happened there. Uh, but an, as an initial thought, at a minimum, it's going to be granted in part as to any witnesses the state plans to disclose. Yes, sir. All right. Anything else, Mr. Rafferty? A couple comments I want sure. to make in response to the argument of Mr. Wade. Um, he cited to a Supreme Court case, Douglas Oil versus Petrol Stops Northwest, a Supreme Court case. It cites to Rule 6E of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. The problem with that case, Your Honor, and the case he cited is it has to do with the use of grand jury transcripts in a civil proceeding, which I know Your Honor knows, grand jury transcripts in the federal courts as part of a criminal investigation can't just be turned over in civil cases. And so the case he cites has to do with whether or not and under one circumstances, grand jury transcripts from a criminal investigation that results in an indictment can be used by civil practitioners in a civil case. That has nothing to do with this case. And the point I'm making with this, Your Honor, is this. Um, the government has now cited to a case that really has nothing to do with this. They come to court here today. They don't respond to the motions in writing. They drop some motions on defense counsel or some cases, I should say. They don't put anything in writing. And they just say things to Your Honor. And that's a troubling practice for me as somebody who practices mostly in federal court. Uh, this is a serious case. I, I think you have to realize, I think that might be the standard practice in this building. I understand that, Your right. Honor, but I look behind me and I see eight, eight folks here on the government side. Uh, we're talking about a case that is unique, to say the least, involving allegations related to the supremacy clause, um, First Amendment rights, all kinds of things. Defense counsel are writing motions. 
I think we're at least entitled to a written response from the government citing these cases so that we have an opportunity to inspect them. Because otherwise, what happens is the government comes in, cites to a case that has no application whatsoever, and suggests to your honor that it is precedent on that governs the disclosure of grand jury transcripts when it does not. Uh, and so my concern and my request is that, and I, I filed a motion last night where I specifically asked the court to order the government to respond in writing so that we have a chance to look at these cases before we come to court here today. That's my request. And so Mr. Rafferty, uh, I think that obviously some of this going back and forth will be touch and go, but I think what we, uh, we could easily do today and, and going forward as well, not every motion may require that. But we can always say if, if a party wants post-hearing briefing, we'll do that. I, I'm not intending to, to rule from the bench on these on a lot of these complicated issues. I, I mean, I've handed a stack of cases and I'm going to read them and, and we're going to have time to get through it. It's going to be an expedited timeline, and, and but I'm certainly going to give you the opportunity to respond. I appreciate that, Your Honor. But my, I, I guess my point is, and I think my counsel uh, here would, would join me in that, you know, this process would go a lot quicker if the district attorney's office with their team of lawyers would write a brief that cites the same cases that they're bringing to court every day so that we have an opportunity before we come before your honor to look at those cases and question whether or not what those cases say supports what they're claiming. And if they don't, be prepared to address it so that we can move this along, as opposed to us having to go back after today, research the cases, then write a post-hearing brief, point out to the judge that what the government is saying is not actually true. So that is one of the benefits, respectfully, Your Honor, of requiring the government to put it in writing. All right, understood. Just, so just briefly in response to Mr. Rafferty's um, argument, um, he did in fact, um, we would say at the 11th hour file, a motion requesting that the state um, respond in writing. The state has done that. Um, I don't know if Mr. Rafferty has had the opportunity to check his filings, but the state has done that this morning. Um, is this is this for this particular motion? Oh, okay. Um, and you know, obviously, I think we're also one of the logistical challenges we're dealing with the case is that you you file something and it's taking hours for it to post the docket. So we're just going to have to recognize that. And I think that's why we, I would say, emailing a courtesy copy is going to be the way to go. Yes, sir. So this uh, morning, the state has filed it. Um, it does cite to the and speak about the cases that uh, the state has uh, cited to this morning and provided copies of. All right. So, uh, Mr. Raffi, and Mr. Roar, obviously, you want a chance to respond to this and, and review it. So, we're not ruling on this today, and we can and take the time to allow you to do that. Just perfect the record on a couple of things with the special grand jury, if that's okay. Sure. Thanks. So, again, I'm citing back to Judge McBurney's order as well as the issues on the special grand jury case. And when you look at 151280, they specifically said it's different from a regular grand jury because they make recommendations as to should we release this report or not release the report, and they vote on it. There's all kinds of discrepancies that aren't the same as a criminal grand jury, which is what we've got here. Now, I take exception to the courts. I know you made a comment that if they're going to call a witness, they have to turn it over in a certain time. I get it. What about all the other witnesses they don't plan on calling? They may be witnesses for me. 1716.4 should trump all that because that's the discovery statute that says any witness they've talked to has made a written statement has to be turned over. That's where the due process is. They don't get to pick and choose what witnesses we get to see or not see. I might want some of them. And if we wait, I guess your order says disclose everything by the 20th of September. So I'm assuming we'll get 
a big batch of discovery I've been told up to eight terabytes by the 20th, I need to be able to review it so I figure out what my defense necessarily is going to be versus doing it on the fly like we do in federal court. And we don't have trial by ambush. That's why I appreciate we're here and the discovery statutes are strong. So that's my point to you. And I would also go ahead and cite to Olson again, which is the most recent case that specifically says, notably the oath of secrecy no longer extends to the state's attorney and even the grand juror's oath encompasses only deliberations and not all things occurring in the grand jury room. So at least for the special grand jury part, aside from the second brief that we've got, we should be able to get everything that happens in there aside from arguably deliberations, but at a minimum, at least the 75 witnesses or whatever else that they presented. So I would say that your honor said at least what they're gonna use. I think that's not correct enough. It should be everything. Thank you. All right, uh, like I said, I'll take a look at it. I also, just a, a passing thought as well, when it comes to Brady concerns, uh, I think we could also utilize a mechanism where maybe they have to in camera give me the entire transcript. And so if during the trial, something comes up that we think uh, is Brady material or should have been disclosed, we can we can pause things and and correct it from there. And on that point, Your Honor, with respect to Brady, as I said, I'd like to talk about it in a bit. But I would just remind defense, uh, the government counsel here that uh, Brady is in the high the eyes of the beholder. What I consider to be Brady material is what matters. What the DA's office considers to be Brady material does not. If I contend it's Brady material, I, I'd ask the court to inspect it and see if it does fit with what I claim. If it does, I'm entitled to it. Understood. Okay, let's move on, obviously, because and we may need to come back to this one uh, at another hearing. Um, depending on how we go, how it goes. So the last motion that we had scheduled for today is the motion to speak with the grand jurors. And Mr. Grumman, it looks like this one's yours. This one's mine, Judge, okay. and good morning again. Um, for this motion, I wanna begin with the indisputable proposition that I'm sure my colleagues on the state side will agree with, of course, that Mr. Chesborough and also Ms. Powell, although obviously I don't speak for her, have the right under Georgia law to be charged only by way of a grand jury. That is a key tool, as we all know, to prevent prosecutorial overreach. I would argue it's one of the most important provisions in both federal and state law. Um, so that's clear. We don't have to, I don't think, argue that point. So then I think, Your Honor, the question becomes, if you accept that premise, what does that right mean? What does that right entail? So if, for example, a prosecutor simply gets up and summarizes to a grand jury a lengthy indictment, as opposed to allowing the grand jurors to read it and understand it independent of the prosecutor. Is that indictment valid under Georgia law? To be quite clear, Your Honor, there, the case law is kind of sparse. We would argue that the answer is no. Thankfully, we don't have to argue that case right now. But the reason we would argue if that were the case, the answer is no, is because the law is clear. The grand jury must act independently of the prosecution. I'll be quite frank, Your Honor, and this is not, I wanna make clear, not in any way um, negative against these lady and gentlemen who sit here at this table, but just generally, I have very serious questions, very serious questions based on publicly available information, which unfortunately is all we have to go on, that this, grand jury, as well as the special purpose grand jury was independent. But we don't know that. That's the problem. We don't know that. And in order for us to find out the answer, which clearly we're entitled to find out, we have to be able to access information. Your Honor, 
I do very much appreciate the fact that uh, Mr. Wade stood up here and said the spirit of openness <laughs> applies to this case. And I truly hope that from the moment Mr. Wade said that forward, that's what happens. I wouldn't be doing my job, Your Honor, if I didn't tell you for the record, I personally do not believe that that has been the spirit of the state of Georgia in this particular case. I think quite the opposite, Your Honor, that every time we file a motion or ask simply for access to the same information that the folks on the state side have where it's responded to and said, no, we can't do that. I know there's a discovery deadline that's I think in a couple of days, I understand that. But quite frankly, Your Honor, we turned over this, uh, they asked, they, this is exactly what happened. The state said, Mr. Grubman, Mr. Aurora, we have your discovery. All you have to do is give us an eight terabyte hard drive. That day, literally probably within two hours, we were down here with the hard drive. Follow-up email, where's our discovery? Where's our discovery? Where's our discovery? There is no, we haven't gotten the discovery. And your honor, I'm not saying they violated the court's order because that deadline hasn't come. But if we're really being open, and if we're really gonna talk about the spirit of openness, I really hope that starts here. And this is just another avenue our request to speak to the grand jurors to allow us to have the same information that the state has. Now, Your Honor, we went back and forth internally, to be honest with you, about even filing this motion, not because we don't want to talk to the grand jurors, but with all respect to the court and to the state, we quite frankly didn't think we were required to necessarily ask the court for permission. As you know, Judge, grand jury secrecy uh, with all due respect for Mr. Wade, citing all those cases that predated the uh, Olson case, it doesn't exist except for deliberations. It does not. The Supreme Court in State v. Olson was absolutely positively clear, as Mr. Aurora stated, there is no grand jury secrecy here in the state of Georgia. There is grand jury secrecy in the federal courts, as your honor knows, that does not apply here. Prior to a, there, there were certain legislative changes, and there was a time, my understanding is, in the state of Georgia where there was similar rules as to federal court, and that is no longer the case. So there's no secrecy. Now there is confidentiality, of course, and main, the only part that's truly secret and confidential is the deliberations. And I want to make sure it's clear that we are not asking to speak to the grand jurors about their deliberations. We will not do that. We're officers of the court. We know we can't, we won't do it. Now, Mr. Um, Wade laid out certain factors of the purposes of grand jury confidentiality. I think he named five, but the Olson case names four. I'm sure there's different formulations. So I'm just gonna go through four. Again, prospective jurors would be hesitant to come testify. Actual witnesses would be less likely to testify fully and frankly if the grand jury was open to others. The Supreme Court said there was a risk that those that were indicted would flee or would try to influence the grand jury against returning indictment if the grand jury was open. And fourth, it was ensuring that those accused but exonerated by the grand jury, apparently that happens from time to time, wouldn't be subject to public ridicule. 
Your Honor, I would submit to you that none of those purposes apply here. None of those purposes, in fact, even apply after a grand jury issues an indictment. Let me let me jump in and having read the Olson case up to today, and I think there was one Colin that really predates it. Yes, Your Honor. And in Colin, they've got the defense calling a grand jury witness uh, to talk through some of these issues of who can be present during deliberations, who can be present during the presentation of evidence, and and so it, it seems to me uh, that I agree with you that you have a right to talk to grand jury witnesses. What about? We'll get to, but. And I'll say it on the front end, I, I appreciate you filing it this way because these grand jurors have been through a lot. Yes. And I think we need to recognize that and craft a remedy here that recognizes that. So my initial reaction, just to lay it out there, is that, yes, I think you have the right to speak with grand jurors. How that happens, I think we can discuss or craft. I think maybe, I don't even know if you can have their contact information. I've heard that it maybe already be out there, but I think that might be, have to be something that is facilitated in hand with the, with the state. Uh, it also has to be something that's voluntary on that part, on their part. But then the question turns to, to what end are we, are we doing it? And I think that, as you alluded to, if the inquiry is to determine, did they act independently? All right. But the standard you're laying out here that they have to, where I then start you know, drawing kind of pausing is this this standard or this benchmark that they have to have uh, affirmatively read every word of the indictment and that's where i wonder if this might not be uh not be, uh, there might not be a point in going down that road if you have some other reason you you, you want to explore then then so be it but this idea that we oh, have that's to show an example your honor first okay. of, i i wouldn't necessarily say every word and if i did say that i apologize but what i do think um we would have a valid argument on and obviously at the right time the court would is that if it was simply summarized your honor yeah. please understand and i hope everyone understands all the information that we have is the stuff that these folks print in their papers. We don't know. So I'm not saying, I am not saying that that's what happened in this case. Well, I will let say me, I let have me, let's even Let's even play in that sandbox a little bit. Let's say it was just summarized. And again, we're just previewing the arguments to see if this is even worth getting into later. At, at trial, a, a jury could come back with a 15-minute verdict. And there'd have been no way that they could have read a lengthy indictment or even looked at every exhibit. And there's, there's no inspection or remedy for that. So why, why would the grand jury, where would this rule come from? Well, the, the, there's, it's not like there's a rule in the statutes, but what there is, is there's a rule, there's a theme in the case law. And we cite many cases, and I'm sure we could cite a lot of other cases, that the grand jury must be independent. Now, what does that, that's why I start with asking, what did that mean? Does it mean that they have to read every single word? I don't know, Your Honor. And if that issue comes before the court, we will brief that issue and we'll figure it out. However, I would argue that if the grant, if the state of Georgia in this particular case presented their case to the grand jury in one day, which I can't say for sure, but based on the publicly available information, that's a possibility it would cause my eyebrows to go up a lot. And I'm not alone. Judge Choflat in the United States v. Sigma International, now that case has been vacated. It's not president, presidential. Uh, yeah, that's the right word. Um, but that being said, the dicta still applies. But it, it didn't, that case didn't have so much to do with 
any method of how the jurors reviewed the indictment. I think they were citing the transcript of the AUSA, essentially steering them exactly where to go. And, and uh, well, your honor, the thing is, that may have happened here. I don't know. And, uh, and I and I hear you there. Just my my point being is that just a summarizing an indictment to me. Um, you know, for for example, if we know the deliberations, we can't go into that. That's protected. How would you ever ask the question of whether another grand juror read the indictment to everybody else during deliberations? I don't even think you're going to be able to answer your own question. I, I respectfully disagree, Your Honor. And we could um, craft some questions. Obviously, we would have to think of the language. But what I think we want to know is, Mr. or Mrs. Grand Juror, when the evidence was being presented to you, did you have the opportunity to ask questions? Did you have the opportunity to follow up? Judge Choflat said, and this is dicta, but we rely on dicta all the time as, as at least persuasive. So too, would we dismiss an indictment that was issued by a kangaroo grand jury, quote unquote, one whose deliberations were so overborne by a prosecutor or judge that the indictment was in effect the prosecutor or judge's handiwork and not the result of considered judgment by an independently functioning grand jury. Now, while we can't ask the grand jurors what exactly happened in the deliberations, what I think we absolutely can ask, and we will ask, I will put this on the record, is was there anyone other than the grand jurors in the deliberations? And that I think is what the other case that um, we cite Collins stands for the proposition. But your honor, we simply want information. I would, the reason we filed this brief, this motion, is to be above board and make sure that everything was out there in the open. However, I would respectfully push back, Your Honor. We would not, we would not agree, obviously, a court could order anything they want for any member of the prosecution to be part of those conversations. We are officers of the court. We know the rules. We will follow the orders. I would also ask the court to um, state, or I would ask the prosecution to state on the record and commit. I'm not saying that they're going to do this, but I have seen other prosecutors do this, that they, if the court grants this motion, they will not attempt to influence the grand juror's decision of whether or not they talk to us. We, of course, know it's voluntary. We would never, once the grand juror said, I don't want to talk to you, we're going to hang up. I can promise you that, whether it's us or our representative. But I think there's a risk here that someone from the state <laughs> might try to get to them first, and that would be inappropriate. What if the grand juror wants a prosecutor to just be on the call listening as well? If the grand juror wants a prosecutor to be on a call, then, I mean, if they proactively say that, we can we can see where it is. But they're not inviting us into our into their prep. You know, they're not inviting us. I've never got an invitation to to help them draft the motion or to talk to them, sit in their conference room. And they don't have the right to be with us. If they want to talk to the grand jurors, they've always been able to talk to grand jurors. They have talked to the grand jurors. But I like Mr. Wade a lot, but I don't want him on that phone call because he's my adversary. And quite frankly, I think that if, think about this, Your Honor, if hypothetically there was um, something that happened in the grand jury that wasn't appropriate, the fact that a member of the prosecution was on this call, I think would prevent or at least make it less likely that a grand juror would be honest with us. What if a grand juror felt, felt and I'm not saying this is true, but what if a grand juror felt that they were bullied by the state into prosecuting? What if a grand juror felt that the state, you know, went a little overboard? Well, you, if Mr. Wade was on the phone, I don't think they're going to admit that to me. So as an officer of the court, Your Honor, 
I think the court, with all due respect, just needs to um, be able to trust counsel that we will do the right thing. And I could commit 100% that we will. These grand jurors, you're absolutely right, have been through a lot. They sacrificed a lot. We are not that, you know, there's been doxing and all sorts of things. We are professionals. We are not those people. Uh, what, uh, how would you, or would you be planning to, to document this in some way? Or would you be recording these calls? Yes. Would you have a court reporter? What would be the plan? I believe there would be some, so we haven't talked exactly about the logistics, but there would be some sort of recording, whether it's a court reporter, just a good old, you know, uh, iPhone recorder or whatever it is. And we would tell the grand jurors that, you know, even though you're not required to do so in the state of Georgia, I would be much inclined to tell the grand jurors, hey, look, we're recording this. It's, you know, just so there's no question of what was asked. Obviously, Judge, the last thing I want to happen is for anyone to incorrectly accuse me or someone on my team of going past what we're allowed to ask. So for my own sake, we'll definitely have some sort of recording. Um, you know, uh, unlike the state of Georgia, as Mr. Rafferty said, they have about 15 lawyers, bunch of uh, investigators, and basically an unlimited budget paid for by the good taxpayers of Fulton County, myself included. We don't. I want to be clear, despite what the media may have said, we don't have an unlimited budget. So whether we could ask a court reporter to be there, unless the court would volunteer uh, your court reporter, I don't know that we can afford that, quite mm -hmm. frankly, but we will certainly record it. <laughs> All right. So uh, essentially what I'm hearing is uh, what you'd be asking before is that we'd propose the, if not the exact questions, but the subject matter very carefully phrased in advance. This would be a voluntary meeting. It would be documented in some way. And even if it's, if the state is not on the call, I think that we could even, we could also have someone from the court there as well, just at any point, yes, if the honor. juror feels like they need to kind of pull the ripcord. Yes, your honor. Um, all right. But otherwise, I don't think there's much point going into the, the merits of the motion because we're just, yes, just a bit premature. So so that's the initial reaction, uh, Mr. Wade. Or sorry, Mr. Rafferty, you had joined this one. Excuse me. I, I did join the motion, Your Honor. The only other point I would make, I joined Mr. Grubman's arguments, is the possibility that these interviews not be conducted in phone, uh, by phone at all, that perhaps they can be conducted in person and there could be accommodations made, I would think, with, with the state and with the defense to conduct these uh, in person as opposed to over the phone. That's just my only other suggestion. And I think in me, the driving consideration is gonna be the uh, desire of the, of the grand juror. Do they wanna come all the way back down here and deal with that or would they rather just do it over the phone? Um, all right, Mr. Wade. Just let me be clear. The state is absolutely opposed to, to any of this. Um, and Ms. Young is gonna come before the court and, and, and tell the court why. But, but I thought that at the outset of Mr. Grubman's argument, um, I thought that I was clear before we started to argue um, in terms of the discovery. Mr. Grubman has, has, has indicated that we hadn't given him anything, but I thought that I was clear that the discovery was here. Uh, well, let's let's keep. I feel we keep getting back to discovery. Let's let's Thank let's you. let's say that to the end there. But those were his arguments, Judge, and I didn't want the court to. Well, right now we're focusing on grand jurors. Let's let's. I understand. We'll get to that ahead of schedule. We'll get to that. Uh, let's talk about grand jurors. Judge, I did prepare. A brief PowerPoint. All right, another PowerPoint. Here we go. Your Honor, uh, if, before the state goes on, PowerPoint before. I mean, come on, this is. This goes to my my original point, Your Honor, which is the state spends the time to put together a PowerPoint to respond to emotion. Uh, that takes a lot of time. I understand. I'm sure it's going to be persuasive. It would be much more efficient for all involved if instead of putting together a PowerPoint. 
Somebody put pen to paper on the team of eight lawyers here, put it in writing so that we could see the cases, we could move through this argument, and we could get to the end much quicker. Uh, now we're going to see these cases from the state for the first time. Uh, Mr. Aurora, Mr. Grubbin, and myself will look at these. We'll go back. We'll probably find things that perhaps are inaccurate and have no choice but to then file some supplemental briefing. Uh, with a trial date on October 23rd, this process is just not an efficient use of the court's time. Uh, the more efficient process here is to write a brief, file it, like we do in federal court all the time, like this DA's office did in federal court in this very case in front of Judge Jones, uh, and just file it here. That's my ask. All right, understood. And I think, uh, again, this, we're just going to take that up on a motion-by-motion motion, uh, basis. All right, Ms. Young. If I may approach, Judge. Sure. Be able to speak to brain jurors. And I think the state and your honor are probably on the same page. So I'm gonna to try to go through this pretty quickly in regards to deliberations, because what the defense motion stated was in their motion is that they wanted to know if the grand jurors had been read the indictment. And that was the purpose for them talking to the grand jurors. Here today, we find that there are some other reasons that they may wanna to speak to them. But the state's belief is that, if that would move, that it's not moving. As the court talked about deliberation, it is part of, the um, grand jury's reading, whether or not it was read to them, whether or not they read it during deliberations, we're all trial lawyers here. We know that a copy of the indictment goes back with the jurors when it's a trial jury. They're reading over it to make sure that the evidence matches it, the evidence that's been presented. That's the same thing with the grand jury. They're given a copy of the indictment. They can do, it, do with it as they please. And if we start to get into questioning that, we are getting into what they were doing during their deliberations. As the court pointed out, did the four person read it to them? Did someone else read it? That's all part of their deliberation process, which has clearly been um, prohibited by the, anyone getting into their deliberation process. So the state's contention is that these questions about the, the grand jury and reading of the indictment summary is part of deliberations and they can't get into that because it's prohibited. And I'll just, just cite, OCGA 151267 says the current grand jury oath requires grand jury to keep the deliberations of the grand jury secret unless called upon to give evidence thereof in some court of law in the state. And it talks about extraneous prejudice information, which I think goes towards the Sigmund case is kind of what they were talking about as the court pointed out whether or not the prosecutor was steering them to a, to a particular decision. Um, it talks about outside influences or a mistake in entering the verdict. None of those things here exist and I'll get to their solution as to how they wanna handle that with the court. But I will also state that federal rule 606 as well as the um, 2406 here in Georgia mirrors that, which basically says the same thing that the validity of a verdict or an indictment a jury shall not testify or an affidavit otherwise, nor shall a jury statements be received in, as evidence in any such manner. And that gets into what is the purpose of this voir dire that they wanna do of these grand jurors? How can it be used? According to the law, it can't be used as evidence at trial. They can't testify, they can't give affidavits, so how are they going to even use this information that they receive? Well, we've got this, I think it was the Colin case where an entire indictment was dismissed when, a, when people were inside the deliberations. And so I guess the question would be, how on earth is a defendant ever supposed to find out whether that happened without talking to the grand jurors? Well, Your Honor, we're officers of the court. We can state 
No one was in there besides the grand jurors. Yeah. That's what they're asking for us to do for them. They can state as their place as officers of the court. This is what the grand jurors said to them. We then can state in our place as officers of the court. Only the grand jurors was present during deliberation. So, in, but in Colin, it says the defense presented the testimony of a grand jury witness to support his assertion. And I know it's, it's not really on directed or that's just kind of in passing a, a fact that's present there, but I certainly haven't found anything in Georgia law that says no one's allowed to talk to the grand jurors. Well, I don't. And I think it's not that they're not allowed to talk to them, Judge, but they're trying, I'm basing on what their motion state. Sure, sure. And I, and I think we've arrived at the same place there where it's going to, again, and why I'm kind of see, seeing that this might all be futile, but uh, I'm with you that deliberations are a hard stop. And I think the defense has conceded that. So really what it all is coming down to, it seems to me, is what are they allowed to be asked? Right. I'll kind of move on okay. to, that, <laughs> to that point, talking about 204-403 about the relevance. And specifically, OCGA 1512-73 specifically states, admissions and communications among grand jurors are excluded as evidence on grounds of public policy. So I just think the things that they are asking for gets into how are the, how are the jurors communicating with one another? I think it all goes towards how they deliberated. Mr. Grubman got up here and talked. How quickly could they have come to this decision? You know, it's a, a 98 page indictment. That all goes towards their deliberation. Asking questions about that is part of the deliberation process, which is, is prohibited. So I think if we're gonna get to, the, to this point, which the state does not concede we should, we have to figure out then how is it going to be used? Because the case law is clear testimony of, of grand jury witnesses, they cannot use this to impeach their findings. And that's what they're asking to do. They're trying to ask these questions in order to impeach the true bill that the grand jurors set down. That, that's what they're essentially asking to do. And it's not allowed based on the case law and by statute. And I'll just cite to one case that they, I don't know if they mentioned, but United States versus Van Eagle, it says an indictment returned by a legally constituted grand jury is presumed to be valid on its face. Similarly, there is a strong presumption of regularity that attaches to all grand jury proceedings. A defendant seeking to challenge the presumption has a difficult burden because it's hard to override and that site is 809 Federal Sub 1360. So Judge, I think we have to get into is it relevant? Is it admissible? The questions that they want to ask these jurors and based on the case law, it is not because what they're asking is we want you to change your mind. We want you to answer a question in a way that is going to impeach your findings. None of the questions that they're at, all of those things are reaching towards that. Was there someone else in there? Did the prosecutor steer you a certain way? All of that is to impeach the finding of a true bill of the indictment. And there's nothing here that says that it should be. I want to touch upon the public policy and the safety that the court talked about. And we've heard it. These grand jurors have already experienced doxing threats. We've had to contact, they've contacted our office because of safety concerns. We've had to contact law enforcement agencies all over Fulton County to then <coughs> make sure that these grand jurors are safe. So I think one consideration the court also needs to make in, in allowing this is the, is the safety of these grand juries and their concerns that have already been voiced. But I'll just say the Georgia Supreme Court observed 
the grand jury as a public institution serving the community might suffer if those testifying today knew that the secrecy of their testimony would be lifted tomorrow. The indispensable secrecy of grand jury proceedings must not be broken except where there's a compelling necessity. There hasn't been any compelling necessity that's been raised by this defense to then pierce this veil of secrecy of the grand jury. And then the state, we kind of talked about Douglas versus oil, but I just want to point out again, Judge, just talking about deliberations and the fact that it should be um, when discussing the charges and votes of the indictment. And I think all of the questions that Mr. Grumman talked about, it, that's where it's going. So if we're going to do this, which the state, once again, does not believe we should, it's going to have to be crafted very carefully to make sure that we're in line with the statutes and the case law. All right. Well, I think we've, and, and oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> I just, and just one more thing, Judge, because we talked about the grand jurors and the safety. And I'm just, you know, all these, all these cases are in there for the court, but I just want to, we have to make sure that we are keeping that paramount because they're asking to be able to call these jurors. These jurors have already said we're concerned. We've had to, and I'm handing them actually another copy of the um, written response that um, I gave to, to the court. But because of public policy and safety judge, I think that is another reason why we should not allow this. And then finally, the lack of authority. What they stated to the court was Sigma, which has been vacated. It's really improper to even bring that to the court to say, consider this when it's not even law. They've vacated it, they've renounced it. So it's not even something that the court should even be considering or thinking about. There is no authority that allows what they're asking the court to allow them to do. The indictment, and I've said that to the court, the grand jury acted rather quickly is one of the things, as the court said, we don't get into deliberations with, with a jury. They can take as long as they like, they can take as short as they like. I understand it may raise Mr. Grubman's eyebrows, but a true indictment was returned by a grand jury and they could have taken five minutes, five hours or five days. There's no case law that puts a restriction on how long it should take them. And that's United States versus Van Agel at 808 FSUP 1360. And as I stated before, Judge, that there's just a lack of authority for what they're asking to do. And attached in the state's brief, you will find in 2010, Mr. Aurora did the same exact thing. They say they come to the court and they're asking for permission. That's because in 2010, Judge Burnick in DeKalb County admonished Mr. Aurora for the same thing, knocking on, on grand jurors' doors, asking them questions. She, in fact, had to issue a temporary protective order to stop that behavior. The state is in the process of trying to get a copy of that order. We were trying to do it before this morning, but we will supplement the record once we get that for the court's consideration as to those findings in that particular case. All right. Your Honor, I'll let Mr. Aurora respond to the personal attacks that counsel for the state um, Speaking of what's inappropriate, you know, it's inappropriate. Let me just pause right here, Ms. Young. Are you, are you, have you finished? I, just, I was not, Judge. Okay. Let's, okay. let's let her finish her piece and then we'll wait. I thought she was. I All apologize. Right. Ms. Young. Judge, I would say, I know you've kind of crafted out some ways that maybe we can do this. The state is not in agreement with that. But if this does happen, the state believes that it should be something that's done with, the, with your honor, present, and with just the four person. They can get whatever information that is needed from that one person because they are the four person. But I would ask that that be something if it's done. The state doesn't believe it should be done, but with the court present, and if the four person asks for the state to be present, for the state to allow to be present, and there are some well-crafted out questions that are given to the court and to the state prior to any of that happening. 
but we'd ask that it's not that it does not happen because it is not authorized by law. Your Honor, I take very extreme exception for Ms. Young coming up here and trying to impugn the reputation of my colleague. If I had to list out the number of cases- All right, Mr. Grumman, let me just out, let me just keep let's keep us well, on track. But, I'm not going to consider it. It's not part of the the record Your Honor, right now. My my colleague was was, and this is broadcast live, and, and that's and you can. And you can well, respond to it say, on your own. Mr. Grubman, please let me finish. Okay. It's not going to be part of the consideration right now. If you want to handle that outside of the courtroom, that's your business. But for now, to stay focused, I think we should just focus okay. on the law. Respectfully, Judge, though, it was said on the record, and I think I should have the opportunity, and Mr. Aurora should have the opportunity to respond, because that was completely inappropriate. There have been many times, many times, that the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, including some of the members that are sitting in the courtroom today, have been called out by courts by name <laughs> with inappropriate things that they do in the grand jury and at trial. So no, I cannot take Ms. Young's word for it that it was done properly. Ms. Young's trying to send my client to prison and we have the right to know if it was done properly. And she keeps saying there's no case law. As your honor said, there is case law. Instead of creating these wonderful PowerPoints that they're so fond of, read our briefs. The Colin case says we can talk to grand jurors. <laughs> so the fact that she got up here <laughs> and lied, lied to the court. All right, Mr. Grumman, I think we she, need to go down that road. Your Honor, right. she lied to the court, and I apologize, Mr. and she defamed my co-counsel. Mr. Grumman, co I've said it's over. All right. Well, I wish you would have stopped her from right. defaming my co-counsel. So where we are... Uh, let me just summarize with motion number one, with the motion to speak to the grand jurors, uh, I would ask, uh, defense counsel to supplement their motion. Uh, we can do this. I don't think it needs to be, since this is something that would be crafted and considered, we can, we can just do this off the docket. We can do this through email, but just a, a, a proposal of the questions, the topics that would be gone into. And if we need to follow this up with another hearing to actually uh, hone those, we'll do that. But I think for each question or subject matter you go into, uh, I'm going to want to see a citation for how this is an actual relevant line of inquiry. All right. Um, and then we'll get in, we can get into the logistics from there, because I think there's a way to accommodate the case law cited by the state about the general secrecy, but still allowing the defense their ability to uh, make sure that the grand jury um, fulfilled its duty in a matter recognized by law. Uh, as for the motions to unseal the grand jury transcripts, I think we'd mentioned that I'll be, I'll be taking that under advisement and I've been provided the case law. For, uh, for, those, for these first two motions, uh, Ms. Young, if you could provide a copy of that PowerPoint to the defense and, and to, to me as well. And counsel for one and two, were, were you desiring supplemental briefing on that to respond to what we just got? I think the case law is the case law. You, if you read it, you'll understand. All right, Mr. Rafferty, did you want to respond? No, Your Honor, I just would echo what I said before. I would just ask respectfully if the court would order on a case-by-case -case basis, perhaps, if the government intends on drafting something like they have today and they, they, they did last week in the form of a PowerPoint, that it be the, in the form of a motion that we have an opportunity to read and be prepared so that we don't waste the court's time. All right. And then finally, three was was mooted. So uh, I think that takes us to just uh, another kind of check-in of where we are.
just a few things on my end before I know we can start talking about some discovery issues and we wrap up. Uh, obviously, uh, I think it might have hit the docket by now. I think sometimes, like I said, sometimes there's a kind of like a delay, but uh, we filed an order on the severance issue. We, I realized I never actually asked the state at the last motions hearing about the redacted indictment issue that Mr. Aurora argued and that uh, was filed on behalf of Mr. Chesbro. If you recall, it's the motion to sever counts from the other defendants. The, the August 30th motion for severance of co-defendants and it lists several of the counts. And essentially how Mr. Aurora clarified it was that he's asking for a redacted indictment at trial. I never actually got the state's position on that one. John, John Floyd uh, for the state. <clears throat> Mr. Wooten addressed this originally. He's not here at the moment, so I'll just step in and pinch it for just a second. As I recall the nature of that motion, uh, one part of it was to sever individual defendants from each other and from the larger case. The uh, subsidiary question was whether specific counts would be severed from the indictment. I believe that's what we I think that's about. how it was phrased. But then when we discussed it, which is where these motion hearings can be useful, it evolved into more of just a we'd like a, a quote unquote dummy indictment at the actual trial of the case. That's at least how I interpreted it. Mr. Roar, is that fair? Yes, Your Honor, and I'm sorry if I didn't write it correctly, but just like I thought you granted it, just like we do in other cases, when the defendants aren't there, you white out or redact the, and make it a dummy net. That's what I'm asking for. I told right. you I would file separate motions with regards to any of the counts substantively if we wanted to. So maybe this is something more we address as like a pretrial motion in limine, but it's not so much as, as I take it and off that, uh, a motion to tailor the evidence or what the state's allowed to present or that those other counts aren't relevant. It's more just what is the document the jury should get? I understand. And, I, and if I misunderstood it the last hearing, I apologize because I wasn't trying to uh, uh, add confusion to a complicated situation already. We don't, we don't, the state, just for the record, don't see any basis to sever out any individual counts as to any defendant, but that I think is not what your honor was addressing now. And I'd suggest this is an issue that we can talk about and, and get to later. We're still, I realize that, that we're not talking about a lot of days, but we're certainly not yet talking about what will go out to the jury, especially since you've been told you're going to be getting dispositive motions. And so it's it's somewhat hypothetical. All right, well, point. I just wanted to raise it that I, I hadn't entered an order on this one and I hadn't heard the state's position, so. Right. Thank you, John. Is it safe to presume it's sort of granted and we'll just work out how to sanitize the indictment? That's all I'm looking for. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. It's, it's, it's still a lingering issue. I'd like to see an order sort of, sort of granted. We'll work on it. I, actually, I'd rather not see something <laughs> like that because it's very difficult for us, but thank you, John. All right. Uh, all right. So other housekeeping. Uh, I think we're going to get, I just wanted to flag this as well, just again, because we're on this uh, compressed timeline. We can get, we'll get more into the mechanics of jury selection at the case management hearing later this month. Obviously, those are conversations we're starting to have with the court administration and the sheriff's office and that sort of thing. But I did want to flag that the state had filed a motion to use a jury questionnaire. I think that's absolutely appropriate here. And I think it's going, I don't think you need to, it, we'll, we'll do it. And so, you know, we'll probably have the deadline to submit those questions several weeks beforehand. So, you know, maybe go ahead and start crafting those now. 
I had spoken with Mr. Wooten last time and we didn't necessarily agree, but at least talked about the possibility of getting together and trying to craft uh, questions that we all might agree on and then maybe having two separate sections, assuming there's some that the state wants we don't want and vice versa. We could sure. submit all that maybe in a joint filing for you. That sounds wonderful to me. Uh, I also want to flag that as I highlight more in the severance order, we're going to make a, an attempt to, uh, because I think uh, my initial review of the speedy trial case law is that it's somewhat uncertain of when a trial commenced, commences. And so uh, we're going to be making the attempt to have this jury sworn by the deadline of November 5th. Maybe that means a weekend or two is involved. But regardless, I just want to warn you when it comes to the questions you submit on there, uh, we're probably going to have to adopt the federal practice of a clock and a timeline. And you have so much time per panel and however you want to use it to see fit. And you can ask 100 questions, but you may not be able to follow up on all 100 of them. So I just want to lay that expectation out there. On a different topic, I give you the court something to think about. Just sure. So um, there's a trial going on right now. Actually, the jury's delivering now in federal court, several federal judges, and then uh, I have a case up in New York, um, have done a modified trial schedule. Just if, if you could hear me out, it's just something the court might consider for a lengthy trial like this. And I could get you all the very specifics, but basically I think they go from like 8.30 to like three or something like, you know, 8.30 to 2.30, 8.33, something like that with like, you know, maybe one 30 minute break, two 15 minute breaks. And what the judge in that case told us through years of research, he's a senior judge, is he said, if you look at the transcript pages, you actually wind up basically getting the same amount of words in at trial. But particularly for a lengthy case, the court, the state said four months, um, not including jury selection, it just might make things more comfortable. So maybe if the court would entertain like an alternate uh, schedule at, instead of just nine to five, that just might be something that makes everyone a little more comfortable, particularly the jurors who are going to have to be here, you know, for I think the court said maybe eight months. So, you know, between four and eight months. Something to think about, Your Honor. And I could. When you say modified, you mean just a shorter day? Shorter day. Starts a little earlier, ends earlier, fewer breaks in the middle. It, it tends to get things done quicker. And I was very skeptical of it when it was. Um, when it was proposed to me in another case. And then um, actually another lawyer I know just finished a two month trial, two and a half month trial in federal court. And they went on that, um, I think it was Judge um, Batten went on that schedule and the jurors apparently absolutely loved it. The court loved it. It just made things a lot easier. So something to consider if you would. All right, well, we'll see. Uh, initially, you know, the reaction was gonna be four full days a week. We'd follow the APS precedent of, of taking likely Friday off to handle other business and let the jurors uh, recover. And in terms of you know a strict, we shall have a break at this point in the morning and that point in the morning. So far, I've found that uh, jurors' personal needs don't really run on a clock like that. And so we kind of have to take the breaks where they come. And so we'll see. But the idea is going to be four full days, at least a week when we start getting to the evidence. But I mainly I just wanted to flag at this point that voir dire might be very different than what we've seen here in the courthouse before.
by necessity. Well, yeah, we are aware of the case. I mean, I think the case law is pretty clear, Your Honor, when a trial starts. So we're aware of that issue and we won't do anything to unnecessarily delay it. I do think it's the court picked up on. It's clearly going to be a challenge. I don't know that there's really anyone in Fulton County who hasn't heard of this case. And I don't know that there's anyone that doesn't have a strong opinion one way or the other about, you know, the former president and the people who associated with him. So we, we recognize the challenges and we will do everything possible to move as quickly as possible. Hope the state will join us in that one. All right, Mr. Wade, just if you wanted to add anything, feel free. But otherwise, I'm just kind of going through some housekeeping issues here. We have every confidence that the court is, is capable and qualified to set the trial schedule and we'll adhere to whatever the court is. All right, but I'm open to, I'm open to input anytime. All right. And then the last thing I would say is obviously seeing the new motions that have come in the door. Uh, I, Mr. Rafferty might be pleased to hear that I, I will absolutely be uh, hoping for some pre-hearing briefing on the supremacy clause issue and, and likely the immunity uh, issue as well. Although I, I don't think Ms. Powell joined on the immunity yet, but perhaps not, not as of yet, Your Honor. And yeah. I, uh, if I might, I do have that Brady concern that I'd like to raise. Right. Well, that's what that's what I'm leaving for. That's all I have. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Rafferty. Thank you. I've been um, in this case probably for a month. Uh, and on August 30th, um, shortly after I got into this case, I sent a very detailed Brady request to the government. Uh, those Brady obligations, as the, Your Honor knows, are independent of their discovery obligations as it relates to this hard drive. Uh, they have a due process obligation to turn over to me favorable information. Uh, and I didn't send them some blanket request saying, give me everything under the sun. It was a very, very pointed request on August 30th that addressed two critical issues for Ms. Powell. Uh, that is, number one, that she wasn't behind this incident in Coffee County, which forms the basis of her inclusion in this indictment. And number two, that whatever happened in Coffee County, there's ample evidence out there that it was authorized, okay? So I've asked for that very specific evidence. In response to my letter on August 30th, I heard nothing from the state. And so this week, I sent a even more tailored request, a copy of which I can provide to your honor, asking for very specific information because I've spent the past month or so trying to figure out what happened and have gathered ample evidence showing those two things, that Ms. Powell was not behind all of this, and that it was authorized. I filed a motion last night that sets out all the evidence that I've been able to find on my own, which I hope the state has, okay? But the most important thing that I've found, Your Honor, is a report by CNN, which I've been able to confirm that there is a letter, a letter of invitation from Coffee County on January 1st of 2021 that was sent, and it was sent not to Ms. Powell, it was sent to another lawyer inviting folks to come down to Coffee County and do whatever it is that they do. What does that establish, Your Honor? Two things. One, what I've been saying since last week in my severance motion, what I said in my motion last night, what I'll keep banging the drum on, which is this was not Miss Powell. That's number one. But number two, that this was authorized. Uh, it was authorized. And I have asked for that. I have not asked for eight terabytes versus discovery. This is a handful of documents. We've got eight lawyers sitting on this side. I'm pretty sure they know how to attach a document to an email. But in response to that email that I sent this week, like my letter I sent last in August 30th, I heard squat from the state. So they sit here and say, Your Honor, that they are open and they're going to turn stuff over. I have been as clear as day about specifically what I'm entitled to under the Constitution, due process, Brady versus Maryland independent of any discovery obligations they have. 
That is exculpatory information that establishes that Ms. Powell should not be in this case. They have it, Your Honor. I have a reason to believe they have it, and they don't even respond. I have a motion. I'm going to file it. I'm going to ask for this relief, but I shouldn't have to file it. If this were in federal court, Rule 5, Your Honor would issue an order upon arraignment, ordering that to turn that material over because they have to. They don't have a choice, and they haven't done it here. I'm concerned. I practice mostly in federal court with federal prosecutors who know that. I have concerns that Mr. Wade and the other folks on this side don't appreciate their Brady obligation. So I'm asking the court to order them to produce Brady material immediately because they're required to. That's my point, Your Honor. I'm concerned. I raise it with Your Honor, and you'll see it in my motion. All right, the record, Your Honor. We have also not received any Brady information. There's a lot. We we know there's a lot. Mr. Wade and his team, who are open and want to send us everything, have not sent us one page. That's the record. All right. Well, so, uh, Mr. Rafferty, um, you, you don't have to stand. I I just I'll just point out. I think in terms of the timing of the motion, the way we we try to keep things as on track as best we can, uh, that we have the final drop dead date of when they're supposed to have gotten you everything that is supposed to be turned over. And at that point, if you still don't have it, that's when that motion becomes absolutely relevant. I understand. In the meantime, there's, I'm hoping that there's an exchange and a dialogue and we, things can be worked out uh, among attorneys, but um, that's, that's, that's the idea, but uh, note your concerns and let's see what the state has to say. And then we might just have to leave it at that for now. And, and my point is your honor this, there is discovery which is governed in federal court, as you know, by rule 16, by state court procedures that are the equivalent. I understand rule 16, I understand discovery. Independent of those discovery obligations, are there constitutional obligations under the due process clause to turn over exculpatory information and to turn it over immediately? Well, and there's no question. I think we're really just talking about timing. And, and, and right? Your Honor, I, I understand that. Um, it has been weeks now. They haven't even responded, acknowledging they have those obligations. They haven't turned over the information. I refined the request and specifically told them, these are the pieces of paper I want. I haven't even gotten a response to the email saying, okay, we understand. I haven't gotten a single piece of paper. I don't need eight terabytes worth of discovery. I need the stuff that proves that she should not be in this case. Judge, respectfully, respectfully, Judge, it, it, it appears as though as Mr. Raffrey wants us not only to provide the information to him, but to spoon feed it to him. That information has been provided this morning on the terabyte drive that he's been handed before schedule ahead of time. The court sets a discovery or a pretrial motions order, a pretrial track for which the state has held true to. We have not violated any of the deadlines. These, these, th what we're doing is trying the case is what we're doing. That's the attempt. They're putting in evidence and he's, he's saying these things, trying to, to essentially try the case before it's time to do that. Discovery has been given to the other side, Judge. It's been given to them actually, not just timely, but ahead of time, ahead of the schedule that the court has set. Now, all Mr. Rafferty has to do is plug it in and open it and find the documents that he's looking for. All right. That's the key, Your Honor, if I could just point this out. And then let me educate Mr. Wade for a second as a former federal prosecutor and a state prosecutor, you do not satisfy your Brady obligations by turning over eight terabytes worth of material and say, go find it. 
That does not satisfy your obligations under Brady, the case law, and the Constitution. You are obligated to turn over specific information that has been requested. You can't just give me eight terabytes and say, have at it and go find it. If you have it and I've told you what I'm looking for, you got to turn that over to me in that form. All right. So I think we're spinning our wheels at this point. Uh, Mr. Rafferty, uh, you know, obviously on that specific point that they have to then kind of point to this and that and respond to discrete evidence requests, uh, make that a part of your motion because I'd like to see the case law on it and we can take that up at the appropriate time. In the, in the meantime, I, I think in order to there's a lot that needs to be done between now and uh, October 23rd. And I think the best use of our time isn't being in court here, talking at each other. Uh, I think that uh, acknowledging an email, replying back to it sometimes could prevent us from being here as often as we may have to. So to that end, I would encourage everyone to keep the lines of communication open and uh, we'll take the motions up at the appropriate time. So uh, anything else that we need to hear today? Okay. And this is something you'd already provided to the defense. Okay. All right. And well, when it comes to scheduling, uh, I, I wanted to address this grand jury issue early on in the case, since there'd have to be some follow-up investigative work, but I don't think we would need to make this a, a weekly recurring thing for now. We could wait until the discovery deadline passes and the motions deadline passes and then start scheduling the rest of these hearings. So that's the plan. Your Honor, on that yes, point of scheduling, um, if it's possible, if we have to have a hearing next week, could we have it Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday? That's my request. I know next week I'm presiding, uh, and right now, Wednesday looks mostly clear. Thank you. So that could be a date we could shoot for if there's some kind of emergency that has to be heard. Thank you. And we could even try, uh, Mr. Roy. Sorry, I was changing topics. Are you done? Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Um, with regards to the scheduling order, I think there was a September 20th deadline and traditionally 1716-4B1 says once we get the discovery, we have 10 days to respond. Mm -hmm. I just, I guess if we got it today, could we have our 10 days starting now for me to respond? Because I don't know what to turn over to them until I see what they have. That's traditionally how it works. But I know we're on a compressed time schedule because... If we all turned it over on the same day, it wouldn't really make any sense because I'm not sure what it is I need to, you know, address as far as our case goes. I hadn't heard that one before. Uh, I think generally the intent of the, the scheduling order is that there is a mutual exchange by that date and that if there is then supplemental discovery because it's newly discovered or newly becomes relevant in good faith, then it gets turned over within five days, I think is, is our general guideline there. Uh, so... I think you, based on the indictment itself and the arguments we've had so far, have a pretty good idea what the state's case is against your client. And so I would think that you could turn over the bulk of your discovery by that deadline. If there's some follow-up that needs to be done and the state's unsatisfied with the timeline of when it's turned over, then they'll file a motion and we'll hear it. I just don't want to be bad fit issue. I don't want to pay experts if I don't need them based on what the discovery says and what witnesses they have since we've got it today. I need to respond. Well, well, experts, I, experts will be classified differently. Uh, I think we also have a trial uh, management order where we say experts are supposed to be identified and summaries of their reports. I believe it's 14 days. It might have been, might be seven. We'll look, take another look at that, but that's, that's in a different category. I just... I mean, traditionally, the statute actually says once government gives you discovery, you have 10 days to do it or X number of days before trial. 
I just want to be able to go through however many terabytes there are. So I'm not sending the same thing they're sending me and wasting a bunch of time. I mean, there's only three of us on Mr. Chesborough's side. That's all I'm saying. There's no bad faith issues. I kind of sort of know what I need. But if they're going to call 150 witnesses, I need to figure out what the rebuttal is because I figure I'll sit through 140 of them and maybe cross-examine 10 in the trial. And so I'll just watch movies or something. But, you know, in the interim, I'm just trying to figure that out. And so. Understood. Well, I mean, obviously, like I think you've kind of already alluded to, if, if after this discovery deadline is passed, then you've got a, a smaller batch that you think now needs to get turned over, then do it. And it should be still well in advance. I don't know about well in advance, but it should still be enough in advance. It's just not new. And I didn't want you to say sure. that it's and the well, and if is, the state has a problem with it, then we'll take it up and then we'll just have to see what the arguments look like. With regards to the more substantive motions, being the supremacy clause, the RICO, the justification, and there's a First Amendment and an anti-slap type motion coming as well. Um, I think you've said that they would probably be required to write it. I'm gonna have witnesses for that. So if we could set that out so I can fly the people in as far as that goes, that would be. Okay. So we'll, uh, at the case management hearing, we're going to want to go into how many witnesses, how long you think each hearing is going to take, and then we'll start setting some dates. And then the last thing is, depending on some of the rulings go, there may be some inter interlocutory requests for a PI. I don't want to screw up the jury selection or whatnot because that stops the tolling or tolls in the speedy trial. I'm just letting you know that may be an issue because some of these are somewhat case dispositive, at least the RICO and things like that. So understood. Understood. We'll take those up as they come. Right. Anything else? Thank you, Doug. Thank you all. Thank you. Noble is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare Noble wherever you found us, and you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.